Hello, Crab here. A lot of you will know that um, recently Lee lost her dad, an extraordinary bloke by the name of Dale Sales, who thought we were all whackers, um, and he's probably right. Um, anyway, look, that happened just after we recorded this podcast, so I just wanted to let you know that, and also to convey Lee's thanks for all of the messages that you've been sending through. She's been um, finding them a source of great strength, and um, I know we're all thinking about her and her mum, and... Anne, a uh, celebrated chatter, and also her brother, Glenn. Thanks for all your messages, and um, she's going to be okay. All right. Thank you. Here we are again, having just finished our Americans podcast, and this is all of the just extra like, stuff. I feel so spent. <laughs> I know. I feel <laughs> like I'm, spent a, too. I'm an emotional dish rag. I've just Happily, served up though. crab some food mm, to try to get her through, which is out of my – I mean, I barely cook out of anything else these days. It's from Community by Hetty McKinnon. It is soba noodles with roast eggplant and edamame, mm. and it has an absolutely scrumptious dressing on it, which is sesame and soy and sunflower oil and all manner of delicious stuff. Soba noodle is right up there in my on my list of preferred noodles. Well, and it's like tastes basically like pasta, but apparently mm. it's less fattening or something. Really? Yeah, it's meant okay. to be quite good for you, soba noodles. Now, can I just share something delicious. nice about you? Oh my god, are you all right? <laughs> I know it's the nice worried thing I've like... said about you in ten minutes. <laughs> um, she said something nice about me at the end of the Americans podcast, which is why I'm a bit off kilter. <laughs> I am happy that I happened to have this. I didn't cook this specifically for you, but I had it here, which was good because I wanted to thank you because one of my children's been unwell and had a um, hospital visit, and you did something incredibly thoughtful, which is. We take our kids to Taekwondo every Sunday and my son always has a piece of banana bread. Mm. And we've never discussed that he always has a piece of banana bread. He just always has it. Mm. And when you dropped over some food for me to put in the freezer, one of the things he brought was a big loaf of banana bread cut into 12 slices so it was all ready for him. And I just thought how thoughtful that you noticed oh. that he always has a piece of banana bread and then when you were thinking about what he might find comforting and helpful, you brought the banana bread. So oh. thank you. It was really it was actually very tough. Oh, he's, he he's, <laughs> he's just heard Come in here. the let's, words let's, banana I get bread. Your verdict on. I was just talking about how Annabelle Crab made you banana bread. Do you want to say hello? Hello. My name is Daniel. <laughs> I've never been on the podcast before. And why were and why was my mom talking about Annabelle's delicious banana bread that she made because I was saying how nice it was because she always sees you have a banana bread at taekwondo and she knew you might like some did you like it it was kind of not that good but I don't know (laughs) well you know I'm glad to be at least in there on the consideration um what um the listener would not have known there is just with what incredible confidence and eagerness, that child just grabbed that microphone Out and the white knuckle grip and he's like, this is it. I've finally been allowed to be on the podcast. Me, 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 That's all right. Next, next stop, his own cabaret show. Um, Seriously, well, was the banana bread no good? Like, I mean, No, it was know, fine. Yeah. It was just different to what he has yeah. at Taekwondo. So it, but right. he, I've got to reverse engineer it. He, he wolfed down two slices before he claimed that it wasn't that great. So I, I'm yeah, sure it was fine. Treat him, man. Keep him, keep him. Now, you've been um, filling in as host of Inside. Yes, I have. How was that? <laughs> it was great fun. It, like it was really, I don't know, it's just like it's such a different kind of thing from what I normally do. I really love the 
structure and discipline of it and all the moving parts and you've got to like keep moving through it and make sure you're keeping to time and all of those things that I normally do not have as a real concern. I know that you do in your job. But the funny thing is like, oh, my God, it was like being you for three weeks, you know, just when you are presenting a current affairs show of any kind, you just you step into this incredible social media maelstrom of like seriously at the same time people going, you are a conservative plant, you yeah. love the prime minister, and at the same time people go, you lefty bitch, mm. just like, oh my god, it's mm. so funny, and just like, and it was kind of like just entering that auditorium when the crowd is already just rioting yeah like, I'm just like oh guys I just arrived I'm just like oh, I know hello. I was wondering how you felt about that because like, people would periodically copy me into just the torrents of abuse you were getting and I was thinking yeah. it's just as you say like it's literally just you you walk in everyone has a formed opinion and then yeah. they just let you have it um <laughs> and the conspiracy theory like as you said, I mean, barely a week goes by that we're not accused of having a secret dinner with Malcolm and Lucy Turnbull, like every single week. I know, and um, I see that poor old Laura has now been invited to the dinner as well. <laughs> she said last night, there's this weird thing going on Twitter where I'm being accused of having a cosy dinner at Point Piper with Malcolm and Lucy. I'm like, oh, I can't remember seeing you at that dinner, mate. Oh, it's just, <laughs> it's, I'm yeah. having dinner with them every week. Yeah, it's just the conspiracy theories and the the, <laughs> the speed with which people swallow conspiracy theories that back their own yeah. um, point of view is absolutely while simultaneously accusing you of being like um, incredibly suggestible. <laughs> you think, mm. well, hang on a minute, you're the anyway. Um, but I also like I was being hammered by this guy the other day. It was like, you have had dinner with Malcolm Turnbull, haven't you? And I'm like, yeah, th- twice that were televised I mean like I've had dinner with heaps of politicians you may remember the series in which I did nothing else part of our part of our job by the way is actually speaking to politicians to find out what's going on so that we can bring you the public information and that sometimes involves oh I don't know maybe meeting someone for a coffee or their chief of staff or them for dinner yes as journalists that's part of our job to actually have relationships with the people that we report on and by relationships before anyone leaps to any conclusion. Well, obviously with you, it's sexual <laughs> primarily. It's, it's the trading of sexual favours for information. Um, no, obviously by relationships I mean contacts, having contacts so you can find mm. out information. It's called being a journalist. Mm. Speaking of being a journalist, that. can I talk about – This is delicious, by the way. Good. Um, can I t- – actually, I don't really want to talk about it yet because I want to finish my um, I might just drop the observation that mm. – Hetty McKinnon, who's the author of Neighbourhood and Community and those other cookbooks about which we've just gone on and on and on beyond the point where I'm sure it's interesting for listeners, um, is about to um, publish her third cookbook. So I'm quite um, attuned to that event, not least because I think I'm helping her launch it in Sydney um, uh, next month, I think, August sometime. Um, so, uh, I'm just, yeah, uh, very, very pleased about her it's continuing family, to pump out those. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, can't, can't wait to get wait. a bit of a look at that. And, um, can't wait to get my hands on that. I love her. I, I love her. I love her. I'm yet to make something out of, oh, I love her reminds me. Did you see that our friend Pamela Rabe won a Rabe! Rabe won a Logie. She won a Logie and she wasn't there because she's in the UK or something. So, of course, now that we've got her contact details, we're basically just constantly peppering her with yep. unwanted attention. <laughs> she's so, like, oh, we should never text agree. Sales texter is like, Rabe! We've got a Logie. Oh, should I, I should also tell people, and our apologies for this, but 
um, in case you're expecting it. The Enmore Sydney show that we did, we sort of – I don't know if we bumbled up the recording or we never intended to record it or I didn't bring the contraceptive device or whatever it was. There is no recording of that show. So you, if you weren't at it, you won't get to hear it, but that's cool. Um, it would have been crappy audio anyway. There was so much mumbling. Totally. Now, uh, what I was going to say before when we were talking about journalism you and good journalism, state. good journalism is um, the Teacher's Pet Podcast, mm. which is another thing that numerous people told me, you've got to listen to it, you'd love it. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And finally over the past week I have listened to the whole lot of it. It's mm-hmm. probably the first podcast in in uh, memory, actually since that one about the clockmaker that I can never remember yeah. the name of, I always call the watchmaker. Um, this is the sh- um, sh- um, shit town. Yeah, shit town, yeah. town. Uh, first podcast since then that I've binge watched, have not been able to stop listening to, Teacher's Pet, yep. the Australian uh, newspapers podcast done by Headley Thomas. I actually think that it, along with... What I love about this is that I've already talked quite extensively on this podcast about it before, but it's like you've just, you know, like, let me just <laughs> open the batting. <laughs> no, I just, when it, now that now that I've listened to it, of course... No, no, I can't wait to talk to you about it. Okay, I'm good. just sassing you because, you know, you're sitting there. I think it's a game changer along with Trace that the ABC did. I haven't listened yep. to that other one, Unravel, Unravel which you like, which, yeah. Um, you will, this is another one that will absolutely hook you in, I reckon. I'm currently – I'm obsessed with both Unravel and Teacher's Pet. It's just like Christmas because there's a new it's episode of one of the other every couple of days. It's to me. So podcasts, so Serial and um, S-Town, they sort of relied on – even though it was nonfiction, they were still trying to create a narrative arc and mm. they were looking for a beginning, mm-hmm. a middle and an end. Mm-hmm. Trace and Teacher's Pet are unfolding more like actual journalism that you do in real life, which is there's no narrative arc because mm. it's – there's often it's don't know not, where you're not end an ending. Up, yep. You don't know where it's going to end up. You're filing information as you have it and you're following it and you're seeing where it ends up. And in the course of – if you are reporting a long story – as you report, people get in touch with you because that you, yeah. you aren't aware of their yeah. existence. And so the thing that's fascinating with Teacher's Pet is so it starts off and Headley Thomas has gone back through the archive and the police documents and he's got some people on tape and he's reporting it. And then as it's going on, I think I just finished listening to the latest episode, which was episode seven, uh, more wow, and you're, more people. You're, you're fully caught up. I am. More and more people are coming forwards to speak to him. So there's people now that I think, wow, how did he track that person down? The guy who. Chris Dawson mm. approached to be the divorce lawyer. I'm assuming perhaps the guy contacted sure, Headley. Yeah. And so now I think as well it, it, it's got to be the power of hearing people's voice on tape and hearing the sort of anguish from people who perhaps didn't speak at the time when this alleged didn't crime occurred. Yeah. And you, you hear them and you think, yeah, I want to back them up because that's how I feel. And so it's this floodgates opening. I should probably, for anyone who didn't listen to the podcast where you raised it, just give a quick summary. It is a podcast about a murder that took place – oh, sorry – it's a podcast about the disappearance, the disappearance of, a of a woman. 1982. Lynn Dawson in 1982. Um, she had two young girls. She disappeared. Her husband claimed she'd just sort of left, got jack of it and run off. There are two coroners have found that it's probable that he murdered her, yet he's never faced trial over it. There are all manner of uh, incredible inconsistencies and bizarre things in the story, including the fact that he was at the time, he was a school teacher, he was having an affair with a student, a year 11 student, who two days after the wife's death he moved into the house. And then it sort of goes from there and, and heavily unpacks And the story has been told on the podcast episode by episode, you know, there's been, you know, people who were around there at the time or in, even in surrounding high schools have started coming forward saying, yeah, there was a real problem 
in that northern beaches sort of beach culture zone where like heaps of teachers were shagging like school kids, you know, and having relationships with them. And oh, it was kind of shocking. So the thing that I treasure about this podcast is actually the same thing, oddly enough, even though it's a different story from the thing that I treasure about the Unravel podcast, which is, and I apologize for sort of mixing it up, but like, it's a really important thing about what podcasts can do, I think. Um, the Unravel podcast, which is an ABC podcast, um, uh, has a story that their current podcast is called um, Blood on the Tracks and it's about a 17-year-old um, Aboriginal guy called Mark Haynes whose body was found on the railway line near Tamworth in 1988. Both of these, like, Disappearances and deaths, you know, um, Lynn Dawson and Mark Haynes were both kind of investigated at the time but not not very enthusiastically. Um, police in both cases really failed to make a good fist of investigating what had happened. And what has happened in the decades since those that, that disappearance and that death is that you've had family members who have never stopped missing and loving the person that something happened to. And what these podcasts have done have has been to go back and just sort of find that story and talk to those people and dust off and bring to life something that might just have been buried forever had um, attention not been paid to it. And yeah. that is such an extraordinary human thing to be able to do. And, like, there's times when I'm listening to the Blood on the Tracks one where there's this – I remember when you first told me to listen to Shit Town, the podcast, and you said, look, this character has this most compelling voice. Like, it's just this – you can't not listen. He's got the greatest voice mm. for a character. Mm. And um, there's a character like that in Unravel oh, um, called Uncle Duck, oh, who's great. like Mark Haynes' uncle. And he's the family member who just never stopped wanting to find out what had happened to his nephew. And this guy's love and courage and faith over all of these decades is the most extraordinary thing. And his voice is amazing as well. You just cannot help but be moved mm. by his unshiftable commitment to mm. finding out what happened to his nephew. It, it's incredible with these stories to think, with teacher's pet, I'm just thinking, how did this how happen? Did this happen? Yeah. But, I mean, Hedley Thomas is doing a fantastic job of, because you feel like how come so many of you people were concerned and yet you weren't sort of really yeah. joining together and connecting the dots or pushing for something. And they and he puts this to people and they explain it, you know, they try to explain it and so you feel like you're getting an insight into it. I just mm. want to talk a bit about Hedley Thomas's journalism. I mean, he has for years and years and years just done amazing reporting on an incredibly diverse array of subjects. And I've often read his work. If you've done work, something wrong and you, then you get a message that Hedley Thomas is on the, the phone. The two you people you least want to hear from are Hedley Thomas and Sarah Ferguson. You mm. just never want to answer the phone and it's them <laughs> having a look at what you've been up to. Um, but I've often wondered when I've looked at his reporting, like, God, how does he get this material? Like, you know, it's just so good. And so I've found it really interesting to listen to this podcast because you're hearing a lot of how he talks to people, mm. how his mind works, how he interviews, yep. and it's giving, I think, a really interesting insight into why he's such a good journalist. It's partly because he follows every detail down at every hole, like he's incredibly forensic and thorough. And when I listen to him talking through 
how he's thinking about things and, and look at picking holes in people's statements mm. or whatever. I think he actually thinks a lot like a lawyer. Like he brings a very lawyerly totally. way of thinking to it. Yep. And also clearly has had a lot of police contacts over the years because mm. he brings a sort of crime type, a police, methodical police sort of approach to it as well. But it's interesting listening to his interviews because um, – I think I said the other week in a podcast we were talking about caliphate and I said I'm a bit annoyed by the leading questions. I mean, so I've listened now to about seven hours of Teacher's Pet. Headley is interviewing for at least 50% of it. Um, Sure, there have been a few leading questions. Mostly I am blown away by the quality of his interviewing in terms of firstly his gentleness and his – sort of compassion with the subject such that everyone clearly feels like they can trust mm. him and, and introduce him to other people and open up to yeah. him. He has a very, very nice manner. But also he's not scared of asking quite direct questions like why didn't you go to yeah. the police? Why did this not strike you as suspicious? Um, uh, were you, he asked a male teacher in the last episode, oh, yeah. were you part of the male circle of people that just turned a blind eye to this? Yeah. And the guy's answer was fascinating. Cause I he know, because he says no. no. And then he says, well. Starts coming around. And it's, yeah, it's this weird, I mean, that's what I find so centrally upsetting about this story is that this woman has effectively been abandoned for decades. And, you know, whatever, what what people whoever they are, seem to agree upon um, about this woman is that she was completely obsessed with her two little girls and she'd had real struggle to have children and nobody alive seems to think that she would ever have abandoned them. And this extraordinary kind of set of developments that this woman could arrange to meet her family at a swimming pool, never show up and never be heard from again, except, you know, according to her husband who says, oh, yeah, Lynn called me today, never called her mother again, never. And, you know, the husband's sort of story is that she ran off to join a religious group in the Blue Mountains, but still regularly called him, but didn't call anyone else and never, ever showed an interest in seeing her children again. We haven't got to the episode yet where he, Headley keeps saying over the course of the podcast that at some point we're going to be investigating why the police did not prosecute when yeah. two coronials said that it, they believed this guy was yeah. guilty of murder. Um, I I mean, I'm really interested to hear that episode because to me the array of witnesses raise – I mean, it's all circumstantial, right? But you can be prosecuted for circumstantial stuff. It's just got to sure. be beyond reasonable doubt. Mm. So I'm really stunned as to why it's not – there's not a hasn't at some point been a view formed that there's sufficient weight of evidence here for it to at least go to trial. Yeah, I, I do not understand that because it seems really open and shut. Um, that, that at least there's a cause. But at least there's a probable. There. Yeah, that's right. Um, but so over the course of the series, there's been like a great deal of mention of this man's godlike status. Right, mm. um, he's a really handsome. Footballer, um, former Newtown Jets star. That's shocking to me because I support the Jets. Um, and um, that he had this sort of godlike status in that beach community that he was, he and his identical twin brother, who was another sort of Greek god looking type chap who was also, you know, messing around um, with, you know, young women and so on, um, that they had this sort of golden immunity and they also had like that he also had extensive 
friendships among the local police as well mm. um, who played footy with and all that sort of thing. So you've got this sort of strange um, conspiracy, I suppose, of those factors with the more generalised factor that people didn't really think domestic violence was any of their business. You know, as you go through this series, you hear from her workmates who said, oh, look, she was always turning up with bruises and, you know, she told us that Chris used to knock her around and, you know, this terrible picture emerges of of this woman who was undergoing something very dreadful and then disappeared. Mm. And because people didn't think at the time that domestic violence was something that they should, you know, interfere in, mm. um, I mean, like, you know, in the 80s, you were still, I mean, marital rape wasn't even a crime in every state in this country, you know, like, it was a different era, but it's so recent that it's confronting to think of all of those women, I mean, this is just one of them, who might have met their end or been abused for decades and not have anyone take an interest, even friends who knew what was going on. And one of the most affecting things, um, about the interviews that Headley does is with her friends who are still not only um, devastated by the loss of that friend but now in this era plagued just horribly by the knowledge that they didn't do by her as well as they should have. The, um, yeah, it's... Yeah, that is very impactful hearing hearing how many years later people feel people will cry talking about I just why I didn't, didn't I do anything? Why didn't I, you know? Yeah. And I mean it's it's exactly like in the Blood on the Tra- Tracks podcast where you hear about what the police were doing to investigate Mark Haynes's death and their lead theory from day 1 was this is an Aboriginal 17-year-old boy, he probably got pissed, nicked a car, um stacked the car and then wandered out onto the tracks. That's how he died. Even though it doesn't gel with any of the evidence of the of the scene, that's mm. what they stuck to through thick and thin because their assumption was that Aboriginal boys um, get pissed and nick cars and kill themselves, you know. Just so horrible. Yeah, the assumptions that get made. Yeah. Uh, I mean, geez, you'd like to think that in this day and age we're a bit more conscious of that kind of unconscious bias and stuff, but, geez, I don't know if we are really. Um, one of the bits that I find most affecting, her, her mother's dead now, um, Helena Sims. Oh, God. But, yeah. you know, the last episode I listened to, I think the mother had written to police or something and she says Every the mum's always trying to be polite and so she'll t- she knows that basically Chris Dawson's moved in, the girlfriend, and, and you know, her daughter's gone missing and stuff. And she, when she writes to police she'll say things like, this caused Joanne a lot of anguish, you know. So-and-so was moved into the house – this caused Joanne a lot of anguish. Oh, sorry, this caused Lynn a lot of anguish. Mm. And she won't sort of spell right out, but mm. she's sort of hinting at it. But there's a letter that she writes which she signs, yours in despair. Yeah. And then Headley says, you know, the mum was always, because Chris Dawson had said that Lynn had apparently gone to the Central Coast or something, the mother would always be just getting the train to the Central Coast and walking around just looking, yeah. just looking for her. Like, Anyway, it's a really, really incredible piece of journalism um and i like the bravery too of just starting to put it out there without there's no end yeah. who knows how it's going to yep. end same with trace you just don't know how it's going to end do you know that in i mean in the current environment the media environment which is very straightened and you know in some ways like the biggest 
debate in print journalism is how can you finance journalism that takes a long time, Mm. you know? Investigative journalism is the most expensive kind and it means taking a person who's very good at their job and probably well paid and putting them on something where they don't, you know, they might be working on it for months and they're not producing daily content. Mm. Like how do you fund that? How do you make it work? And I think that podcasting is a really fascinating new development in that model where you can allow a story to be heard your job is to kind of bring it to light but you're also involving the listener in the process mm. and you're allowing them to participate in um in in the story using other senses apart from just reading um, yeah and so it becomes like a um you know like a performance or like like television but less expensive yeah. and more absorbing in a way for the listener because you can um allow your brain to fill in the gaps yeah. of what you can't see right Definitely. and sometimes and particularly if you luck into having a character that's got an extraordinary speaking voice um you can bring a whole new element to even to stories that people are familiar with. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, you know, like the Bowerville podcast I thought was, you know, it's a story that, um, you know, you've read about before but the texture of hearing these relatives' voices just brought a completely new dimension to it, a new mm. urgency to it as well. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's really it, – it, it reassures me actually that the – fact that this sort of podcasting can um, engage audiences and capitalise too on that modern phenomenon of people who want to consume content but just don't have much time. So it's a way of using spare time to educate yourself about, you know, a long forgotten story or, you know, any of the millions of other educational podcasts. You know, you can make use of every minute of the day, which is yep. sort of the modern it's challenge, really isn't it? It's really exciting actually listening to some of those things and seeing like I think it's a sort of new form for a certain type of journalism, yeah. um, which is I just find it yeah. really exciting. It's really anyway, good for original it. music composers as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, because It's um, great. So, so much of the effectiveness of a podcast is about its – sound engineering yeah and also the the music yep. that you come to associate yeah. with that story you know it's so evocative well, and, and it's the, really important to get it right the bones of the story are revealed in a way and the process that you don't get in a traditional piece of like if you watch four corners or something yeah. you're not getting the bones no. of the thinking mm. whereas i feel like with this i'm getting a real insight into the way the journalist is yeah. from how he speaks to the talent he'll be saying but hang on let's can we just talk through this or the, or sometimes you know the the he'll say to the talent well, what do you really think you know this and then the person will go well I think blah blah what do you reckon yeah and then it goes back and forth and they're sort of sharing their theories back and forth it's quite do you think one of the reasons why podcasting is sort of popular I mean there are heaps of reasons but given the contemporary just like hyper jaundiced view of journalism and Mm. you know like I having just had a few weeks of being shouted at like you get shouted at every day I just like there's this incredibly crazed pitch to the Mm. you're all full of shit kind of Mm. um critique um if there's a form of journalism where you're 
effectively walking alongside the journalist and hearing the techniques that they're using and seeing the decisions that they're making or um, how they're weighing conflicting evidence or accounts, then it feels like a more kind of what Malcolm Turnbull would call open kimono. (laughs) I love that. Did you tell you that at so dinner much? last yeah, night just when you were like, there? Yeah, <laughs> just slipped it out. Um, yeah, look, it's. Well, you know, you were there, mate. I think and that's. Your mate single. I think that's true. I've just finished reading an advanced copy of a book called A Hundred Years of Dirt by Rick Morton, oh. who's a journalist at The Australian as well, which is great out title. Soon. Um, is anyone at the Australian doing any work? I'm just <laughs> writing books and doing podcasts. <laughs> Looking at you, James Jeffrey. Looking at you, Rick Fred Morton's, Dalton, it's with an, your disturbingly excellent debut novel. <laughs> Screw you. Also, we're just aren't we destroying our credibility? Oh, no, we're feeding into the conspiracy theorists on social media by praising people at the Australian because oh, no, we're right. on the Murdoch team. So okay. yeah, is that what you're? Don't worry, we, st- we still hate <laughs> we still hate Chris Kenny and Jared Henderson. It's okay. Oh, oh, come on, <laughs> I love those guys. <laughs> um, Hundred Years of Dirt by Rick Morton is it? It's a memoir about his um, childhood and adult life, and how he was raised in a family where um, his dad left. The family was really poor. Uh, it was everything's been a struggle the whole way along. He uh, it was they grew up in rural Queensland. He managed to sort of work his way into journalism despite some self-destructive tendencies. Now he's a journalist at The Australian and doing some That's why it works. You've got to be self-destructive tendencies to be a journalist. He's been doing some amazing work about the NDIS at The Australian. Anyway, he makes the point in the book about there's two things that really stuck with me. One is how if you are from that background, how stacked against you it is to get out of that background. Yeah. He talks about his sister studying to be a midwife and how he and his mum has next to no money and Rick's, you know, on a sort yeah. of moderate journalist salary. Um, they are throwing money at his sister. Rick's, Rick's paying, you know, unforeseen bills like the car breaks down or whatever. Yeah. The sister has to... For midwifery, you have to follow women through their pregnancies yep. and show up at their deliveries yep. and all that sort of stuff. Um, you have to be basically by the end of your, your degree, you're interning really for free. Yeah. That's fine if you live at home with mum and dad yeah. and there's money in the family. If you have to have a couple of jobs to yeah. support yourself, your life becomes hell. Yeah. She's living at home with the mum because she can't afford to rent somewhere else, but that means she has to then drive an hour and a half to get to uni every time yeah. or get to her placement every time. <clears throat> so her life is incredibly difficult. And Rick says, really, to get my sister out of um, that sort of environment we grew up in and for her to have a, a job like a midwife, it took three of us contributing yeah. money and time and resources for her to get out of that. She could not do that on her own. His brother, he writes about, um, has been in prison. He's an ice addict. He's a drug dealer. Um, and Rick writes really compassionately about that and talks about, you know, it's not, Rick says, it's not like I made the right choices and was conscious of making them and my brother was making the wrong choices. It's that I just made choices and my brother just made choices. Maybe my choice was to get out of my, where I grew up by any means possible. Maybe my brother's choice was to numb the pain. Like we just made different choices. Um, And that's really impactful. But then he writes really brilliantly and I thought bravely actually for somebody who works at The Australian, which is heavily immersed in the culture wars, to say a lot of what journalists write about, you know, who who is representing the people Hmm. that Rick Morton grew up with and, and knows? This the culture wars and the time that gets wasted on stuff like that and the sort of issues yeah. that 
that attract so much newsprint. I mean, that means nothing to people who are trying to put food on the table and keep a roof over their head. And sure, do but that they would have stuff. pretty strong views on like whether or not the ANU should offer a course in Western civilization. <laughs> I'm thinking like that would be the exception. Look, I, I mean, I know when I go, be... I know when I go home to Queensland, that's all anyone can talk about. Yeah, <laughs> screw the screw the quality of the road between Gladstone and Brisbane. It's actually all about ANU and the Ramsey Centre. <laughs> I love how that was that was on a news poll the other day. <laughs> she stuck it on the end of a news poll. Just ridiculous. <laughs> Collective and also brain explosion the, the around the nation. Rick, Sorry. Rick the- raises the point, you know, that these people who rail against you know, the elites and stuff are people who um, have, you know, opinion columns in the national newspaper, live in um, some of the ritziest suburbs in Sydney. Like they would have no idea, frankly, mm. what people, you know, working class Australians go through and yet they pretend to be the voices of these people. And Rick, I think very categorically and methodically and persuasively mounts a case for why journalists should be more in touch with issues that, you know, the sort of working poor, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, have to deal with. And he also makes the point that while the media has um, gone for diversity, he doesn't meet many people that come from a background like his. And so while, say, sexual diversity, gender diversity, cultural diversity are all worthy goals and important in their own way, if everyone still went to Sydney Grammar, that's not the sort of – diversity you want you want some economic oh, this diversity sounds a bit well. like a sort of australian version of hillbilly elegy it is a bit, yeah. yeah um but it's it's really well written and i felt when i read it excited to think i mean rick writes a lot about his own mental health issues as well and several suicide attempts and stuff and so he's got his own battles to fight too i think if he wants to he has a long and unique and fruitful career ahead of him in journalism or in writing yeah. because i think he's an excellent writer yeah, he i think is. he brings a degree of empathy and understanding because of his own background. It's a case of what he wants to do yeah. with that and what he's able to do with that. But I think he's a very talented person and it's a really, really impressive piece of work. Wow. I can't wait to read that book. When's That's it coming great. out? Um, I think uh, around the start of August. Right, okay. 100 well, Years of Dirt. Be, it'll What's be... that noise? What? Um, I don't know. It sounds like a donkey that's gone mad in your living room. <laughs> Is it on the TV? Yeah. Oh, Okay. Oh, it's so strange. <laughs> um, one other quick thing that I'm reading before yep. we run out of time. Uh, oh, God, we've already got a lot of yeah, time. Um, the Peacock Summer by Hannah Rochelle. Um, oh, wow. Okay. You've interviewed Hannah, haven't yes, you? Yes, I have. She's in my book. Uh, she's a British writer. It is, it's a book that opens with a young British woman who's sort of been living in Australia for a while. She's having pretty, you know, just a one-night stand at the beach basically and then she gets a call that her grandmother has taken really unwell back in England. She goes back to England. She finds the house where her grandmother lives decrepit. Her grandmother's in terrible state and the story flashes back and forth between the sort of the current era and what the girl's doing about the grandma and goes back in time into the grandma's younger life when she's unhappily married her husband hires an artist to come and live in their house okay. to paint a particular uh, – wants to work on a particular project mm-hmm. and the grandmother has a relationship with this artist and so it goes back and forth between the two things. It would be a perfect uh, plain read, holiday oh, read. okay. Um, it's just a very absorbing, well-written, um, entertaining piece of work. Okay. Yep. Great. Really liked it. Run out of things to say to you. <laughs> 
I haven't actually. <laughs> I have got. Come. There's got a. There's a whole lot of things that I've actually been reading and seeing. You know, but we've run out of time. So, in... like, you know, no, no, you've thoroughly explained the the things that I've already talked about on the <laughs> podcast, though. So that's good. <laughs> Hey, I've something. been sales-splained. I said something nice about you. <laughs> no, the start, really good so. thing about this podcast is. Oh, it's perfect timing. Tracy's oh. here. Hey, Tracy. Hello. Okay, we're going to say goodbye. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye.